Scripture reading, sermon text this morning is Psalm 37. We'll just take the first eight verses. This morning we'll look at the verse four, but we'll read to verse eight. It's a 40-verse psalm. Psalm 37. It's a psalm of David, and it begins, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. This is God's word. And we're going to take two weeks in the middle of the summer here to jump into the first eight verses of Psalm 37. Just these first eight verses this Sunday and next. We'll split them in half. Verses 1 to 4 will be our focus today. Verses 5 through 8 next Sunday. But the emphasis is fret not how the English Standard puts it, other versions as well. You see it there in verse 1. It's repeated, fret not yourself because of evildoers. And then you go down to verse 7. Fret not yourself, middle of verse 7. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. That's one and the same, who prospers in doing evil. And verse 8, we get it again, the second line of verse 8. Fret not yourself, it leads only to evil. What does it mean to fret? I mean, we're told not to do it, so what is it exactly we're being told not to do? The language of the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, is visually descriptive. It's one reason I I like it. The seminary I went to, um, it required us for the degree I was there to get, we had to do five semesters of Greek and four semesters of Hebrew. So we had to to learn the languages because... uh, they wanted us to, to be able to really to dial into the text and what it's saying. And, and lo and behold, most of what it says in the original language, it says in the English translation as well. But we still needed to know what the languages were like. Uh, I struggled with Greek. I shouldn't admit this to you, but my first semester in Greek, I made a D. Uh, you know, they, that means I should be in a backwater church somewhere probably. But uh, I survived. I got a tutor. And, uh, and got through uh, Greek. What I struggled with in Greek is that I tried to read it like English. Uh, but Greek word order is different, sentence structure is different than English, but, but because I, I recognized certain words, it was really easy to try to transpose English reading onto Greek, and I, and I struggled. But I didn't struggle with Hebrew, because Hebrew was completely different. For one, it's backwards. You read it the other direction. You read it from right to left. And um, it's also, it doesn't look like English at all. And also helping me out, (coughs) excuse me, that's not COVID. Uh, You have to say that now, don't you? I mean, you feel so self-conscious coughing anywhere. It's like, it's not COVID. Um, Is I, um, it's so visually descriptive. And so for instance, if it says in a biblical character, of a biblical character in the Old Testament that he got angry, Uh, Literally, it's probably his nose was hot. (laughs) 
And that's the kind of descriptive visual language that Hebrew is. Likewise, our noses are hot under our masks, I know. Uh, But this word fret here, I tell you all that to say this, the word fret that you get in verse 1, verse 7, verse 8, it's similar imagery because to fret conjures this picture of getting heated about something, which is similar to the idea of anger in Hebrew, except in fretting, it's an anger-anxiety mix. The anger that you experience, it expands out over into anxious territory, anxiety. And so to fret is to experience anger and anxiety mixing. Now the psalm in its entirety, if we took the time to read all 40 verses, we'd see it's establishing a reality and contrasting it. The reality is there's evildoers in the world, but God has his righteous people in the world. And the righteous and the wicked, as a term gets used throughout Psalm 37, uh, we're going to intersect. And yet, we're not supposed to fret. We're told this in verse 1, verse 7, verse 8. We've already noted it. We may get angry uh, at evil doing and evildoers, to use the term in verse 1, wrongdoers also there in verse 1. We may get angry about that. We'll talk next week about what he means by not getting angry. That's a particular uh, kind of anger that we experience, a kind of anger you live in. That's what verse 8 is about when it says, refrain from anger and forsake wrath, that kind of anger that becomes dominant. But there is an anger we all experience. There is a righteous anger. There's an anger that you experience over uh, things that are really wrong, really evil, and, and need to be righted. Jesus himself got angry about that. But if we're fretting, our anger has developed a bad case of anxiety. And that anxiety will inevitably cause us to seek stability in something other than the faithfulness of God to us in Jesus. It's the same with uh, envy. You see the second line in verse 1, be not envious of wrongdoers. Uh, If we're envying them, uh, then we're also bypassing what we have in God's faithfulness to envy. We're going to focus on this this fretting, this idea of of fret, because it gets repeated three times. So, the psalm is directing us toward uh, a certain kind of composure. You've heard of being cool, calm, and collected Uh, you know, a lot of people feel like, well, you know, that's like a personality trait. And so I'm not very cool, calm, collected. You know, I've always been a nervous type, somebody says. Uh, It's just my nature. I can't help it. And it may be that we cannot help our, our nerves. But if we ever conclude we can't help but fret over the problems around us, be they just take them in concentric circles, be the problems that are immediate to you, uh, on out to the problems that, that are societal problems, cultural problems, if we, if we feel like or give ourselves permission to believe that we can't help but fret over people and places and things that alarm us and dismay us and threaten us in whatever the, uh, way that they do, to feel we must fret and allow ourselves to do is to seek stability in something other than the faithfulness of God to us in Jesus Christ. The confession of Christians is that in spite of all the things we count on, and we count on a lot of things, 
what ultimately we count on, the only thing we really have to count on is the faithfulness of God to us in Jesus Christ. So you've heard of cool, calm, and collected. This psalm is directing us to the collected part. I may not always be cool or calm. Again, some things are really wrong, and those responsible for those wrongs, those who carry out evil devices, to put it in the terms of verse 7, some of that is bound to upset me, and it should. There's some things we should get upset about. Uh, You know, I, I got involved in foster care, not because I'm some great guy, and Lynn would want me to say the same about her. We know ourselves. So you get kudos, you know, y'all are special people. We get strangers telling us that now. And we're not. We didn't get involved in this because we just have all this great love, you know, that we, we want to share with uh, the world's children. And candidly, we got involved in it because it makes us angry that there are thousands of children just in this state alone in need of homes, and this state per capita has the most evangelicals of any state in the union. I'm not cool with that. But now, if I go to berating you about the foster care needs in Tennessee, then that anger gets anxiety mixed in it if I'm trying to control you, to make you do something about it. That's a terrible way to motivate or appeal to people because the more I try to control you, the more I'm actually fretting over you. And if I use guilt and shame to try to get you to take whatever action, meet some point of need, whatever it is, if I try to guilt you and shame you into that, it's actually evidence that I'm fretting over you. So I I try never to do that. I'll just say if the Spirit of God can make me a foster parent, He can get anyone because I'm selfish and and I'm seeing that. It's like, you know, when you got married, you started to see shades of yourself. You didn't know we're there. I try to tell every premarital couple, just It's going to be great, but it's going to be hard in some ways. You're going to learn yourself in ways that you don't right now recognize, and it's the same in anything that we give ourselves to. Again, we'll talk about this next week when we get to verse 8, but none of us should ever make anger a way of life or even the dominant motivation for anything we do, even the good things that you do, that maybe you got upset about and said, somebody needs to do something about that. Maybe the somebody is us, and, and we do, but... Anger is too unruly to live in it, as is fear and anxiety. Nonetheless, the psalm establishes some things are really wrong, really evil, and I won't always be cool or calm in the face of those things or the faces of their perpetrators, those who drive these things, give themselves to it. But if I abide by this psalm, I can be collected. Meaning, I can experience a kind of composure that is available to us in Christ, a kind of composure, a collectedness, I'm calling it, that comes from the faithfulness of God to me and Jesus, this getting drilled down in me. His faithfulness is really all I have to count on. Now, I said a minute ago, we count on many things. So when we put this in the large category of all that I have to count on really is the faithfulness of God to Jesus. Well, we count on so many things. We count on every restaurant we go to to serve us good food, not spoiled food. We count on our bank to not lose our money. We count on our dogs to always love us. 
We could go on and on with a list. Why does it upset me? The one morning my car doesn't start out of hundreds of mornings of it starting and I go out and I kick the tire. You lemon, you know. It's, it's like uh, Balaam and his donkey, you know. Balaam beating his donkey and the donkey says, look it up in numbers, a donkey spoke one time. Donkey speaks again. Um, you know, why have you struck me these three times? Am I not your faithful donkey? <laughs> led you around? If they're stopped in the road, there's a reason. A car is a silly example. Let's take a more serious one. I want to count on my car, but cars can be fixed if they're broken. What about a culture? Can a culture be fixed? Ours seems to be breaking apart at the seams, doesn't it? Culture warring causes a lot of fretting. Will we get torn? I mean, we're thinking about this as Americans because there's just so much anger out there. And even in here, I mean, if we get honest and say, yeah, you know, I'm really mad about some stuff. And are we watching the nation get torn into these uh, uh, secessional identity groups that cancel each other out all the time, shout each other down, and, and there's no sense anymore of one nation unifying values? A lot of us want to be able to count on our country living up to its founding vision, at least living into it. And some of us get angry when it's not, but if our anger develops a bad case of anxiety, then we fret and we try to take control in our fretting and a lot of times we may do wrong to our witness in certain ways if we try. When people out there, just to put a fine point on this, when they look in here, when they look at the church, Christians around them, do they see us counting on the faithfulness of God? Do they see a certain composure and stature that goes with that? Or do they find us fretting over everything that's unfaithful around us? As if faithfulness is a, is a paper virtue for us, a Sunday thing, not something that we're putting into practice in all of life until he comes. Now, again, we're not taking all of, of Psalm 37 this Sunday and next, but if we did, we would find in the whole, in its entirety, Psalm 37 contrasts. It's a familiar contrast, particularly in the Old Testament, the way of the righteous which is illuminated by God. It's not a way we found, it's a way we're put on. God comes to us in our sin, turns us to his light, his way, his truth, his life. So the way of the righteous is contrasted with the way of the wicked, the wicked being those who are not rightly related to God, those who are in their sin, those who are trying to maximize their sin for their own use. That, that's a familiar Old Testament macro large concept contrast, and that's Psalm 37 if we took time to look at the whole thing. It tells us that the wicked and the righteous are not poles apart in the sense of never mix. We mix all the time. The psalm is saying you will intersect with people that you will deem evil in their actions and wrong in, in, their, in, in what they're about. But the righteous have something going for us the wicked do not. And that is, we will see the glory of God. The glory of God is our destiny when the grace of God is what justifies us and, and, and holds us before him in Christ. Verse 6 says it. He will bring forth your righteousness. This is verse 6. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. 
That's contrasted with wrongdoers, evildoers, verses 1 and 2. See it again? Evildoers, wrongdoers, verse 1. They will soon, verse 2, fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. That's the contrast. And the contrast is all through the psalm. We're just getting the flavor of this psalm in two weeks. The psalm is saying evildoing wrongdoing and those who are responsible it will flash and flourish for a time but not all time it will fade it will have a cutoff point and we may not be preserved from wrongdoing getting on us coming against us it may be some time before the wrongdoing of evildoers to use this term withers soon is an elastic word in bible (laughs) and the word soon is there We don't know how long soon is or how short. What are we to do in the meantime? Verses 3 and 4. And 5, 6, 7, and 8. We'll get to 5, 6, 7, and 8 next week. But verses 3 and 4 and the rest, it gives us some actions. I count five actions in just verses 3 and 4. Look at them. Trust in the Lord, action number one, and do good. They're related. They're connected actions. Dwell in the land, action three. Befriend faithfulness, action four. Delight yourself in the Lord, action five. And he will give you the desires of your your heart. Here's some actions. They go on, verses five through eight. We'll get to the, the going on next week. But here are actions meant to fight off fretting. I love the realism of Scripture and the biblical writers, superintended by the Holy Spirit of God, in communicating to us how we actually are, what we're actually like. They know, God knows, we're drawn to fretting. (laughs) Some of us like to fret. If we're not fretting, we feel like something's not right. And so we're not just told not to do it as a negation, stop doing that, you know. We're given some counteractions. These are the resources that you're given in Christ. Reading the Psalm as Christians, reading the Psalm this side of the cross, We uh, have resources, and these are what they are. And so when that toxic mix of anger and anxiety is in us, that's what it means to fret. Taking these actions together today and next Sunday, I want to suggest to you that the the actions in verses 3 through 8, but just looking at 3 and 4 this morning, these actions show us what composure in Christ can look like, what being collected can look like. Let's take them as they appear to us here, line by line. We'll start with the first line in verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. You see how this just goes line by line. The first line, 3A, if you will, trust in the Lord and do good. Now, what is trust? Trust is a developed confidence. You might trust initially, you might trust immediately, but trust in the Lord and do good is a developed confidence in Jesus' faithfulness to us. There's a knowledge component to it. There's an experiential component to it. There's an affection component to it. Trust is all of that. Trust isn't just a, uh, an, an assent. I will trust and I make that decision. Trust involves the will. It involves the emotions. It involves all of it gathered into a confidence in Jesus' faithfulness to us. Another way of saying it is I can, I can confide in Jesus Christ. 
I can lean into everything God has promised to be for us in Jesus. I fight off fretting by trusting. It's a counter move. And there are postures and gestures which the scriptures are replete with examples of what it looks like to trust him. There's evidence of that. There's a a framework that that fits in of actions and responses. Let me give you um, something that happened just this week. My son Colson, he's 13. He asked me this week, we were just driving along, and he said, Dad, why did God make Adam and Eve if he knows everything and knows that they were going to fall and, and all of their descendants after them was going to fall? And I said, that, that is a brilliant question. I'm glad that you asked it. You should know it's a question that centuries of theologians have wrestled with. And so the answer I'm going to give you, son, I have an answer, but I don't want you to hear this as just, you know, in your memory, it's one day I asked that question, you know, dad gave me some answer and, and boom, that was it. This answer that I'm going to give you is an answer that you live into. There's an answer to your question. It's not an answer that comes from uh, necessarily a a chapter and verse. Here's the answer to why Adam and Eve were created. But just putting all that context around it, I said the only true answer I know to give to your question is that God's glory is everything. And God gets more and greater glory for himself in the world playing out this way than any other possible way. Centuries of theologians the experience of people walking with God from the garden uh, on into the new garden in the new Jerusalem, uh, that's all we know to say about that. God allowing evil doing, God allowing wrongdoing, because that's the question behind the question. Why has he allowed all this stuff, all this tragedy and suffering and pain? It's a good question. He's not authored it, but he allows it. He's, he didn't annihilate it at the cross, but he wounded it. He, he defeated it. And somehow, in a way, we will not see in life here, but we will see in eternal life, which is where the trust comes in. The glorific, our glorification at the renewal of all things, somehow the glory of God, when all the dust settles and that's all that's left, the glory of God gets, the, the, he gets for himself is somehow greater for the story going like it does here instead of it going some other way. What am I supposed to do with that, Dad? (laughs) He didn't ask that question, but that would have been the logical question to ask. What would I do with that? And my answer would be this first line in verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Work at developing such a confidence in Him, His goodness, His perfections, the accomplishment of everything he set forth to do, work and developing such a confidence in that, that wrongdoing and evil doing, which is inevitable, will not fret you out of that trust. This is the story we're in. There's not going to be another one until Jesus stands in the sky and says, behold, I am making all things new, which he will. But until then, we live in this story, which when it's all bound up, all the story is bound up in the end, as it were. If it was put into a big book on the spine, it would say the collected works of God from day one to day end, whenever that is. Life isn't a story about me. 
If you believe that it is, you're believing a lie. If I believe life is a story about me, I'm believing a lie. A lie that actually conditions me to be more susceptible to fretting. But if I believe and know that life is a story about the glory of God appearing in the face of Jesus Christ to do something definitive about evil that mars his creation and shows up in his creatures, including me, and that salvation, redemption, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, that that's the the plot of this story. And we're written in when by faith we answer the call to trust him, set our lives by his truth, develop confidence in him through whatever comes. That's what trust, trusting is. And guess what? He uses trouble often. He uses turmoil. He does to develop us. He even uses wrongdoers and their wrongs against us to develop our trust, which doesn't make those wrongs against us right. God doesn't make people do wrong that good may result. Wrong is wrong. People do it themselves. It's cursed. It's It's terrible, but nothing, and I mean nothing, unseats the decreed purposes of God over and through all he's made. That's been the confidence of Christians for centuries. So what can wrongdoers really do to us? Well, they can do a lot, (laughs) and a lot of it scares me. Yeah, it does. Why are we fretting over them? They can do everything except separate us from the love of God in Christ and that has to be our everything the experience of becoming a Christian may be a point in time encounter with Jesus maybe in a church maybe at a camp maybe with your grandmother's dining room table maybe at the side of your bed with your dad leading you in a prayer maybe in campus crusade meeting maybe wherever the point of encounter with the Lord is, a, is an ignition, a starting point, but then the rest of our Christian life is learning how the love of God for us in Christ is to be our everything. And when it's not, the church ends up fretting over a world we have to try to get control of. And we expend, we really waste so much energy trying to do that. Trust in the Lord and do good. And now the second... Um, Two actions that couple up together in the last line, 3B, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Now, I love the poetry of that, befriend faithfulness. That's beautiful. One of my favorite verses, one of my favorite lines in the psalm is right there. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ruin it for you a little bit, but we have to get the meaning Because befriend faithfulness is a wonderful rendering because the alternative would be the idea of feeding faithfulness and who knows what that means. This imagery at the end of verse 3 comes out of pastures where sheep grazed. And if you know anything about the way sheep eat, it's kind of gross. Sheep are cud chewers. Now for the kids in the room, little kids, if you're listening right now, do you know what it means to chew the cud? That means a sheep will bite off the grass and swallow it whole. She doesn't chew it up. She uses her teeth to bite the grass and she swallows it whole. How many of you little kids, your your mom and dad have told you, don't swallow your food whole, chew it up? Well, the sheep doesn't do that. I saw Adeline's hand. Thank you, baby. 
The sheep doesn't do that. She swallows her food whole. The grass just goes right down. And then the stomach of the sheep has this chamber that's where it kind of pre-digests. And then guess what the sheep does? This is yucky. The sheep regurgitates all that grass back up into her mouth. And she lays down. And she chews that over and over and over again. Chewing the cud. There's some other animals that do that. But sheep are uh, the ones we think of uh, prominent and did you know that eating that way actually requires extraordinary energy from the sheep? It's not an easy way to consume your food. In fact, the sheep lies down to chew. This is the imagery of Psalm 23. He makes me lie down. She lies down to chew her food and actually lapses into something of a semi-conscious state. Have you ever looked at a sheep's face? It looks even dumber when it's chewing the cud because its eyes kind of glass over. It goes into the semi-conscious state, which then makes the sheep more um, vulnerable to predators. Again, see Psalm 23 for a lot of this imagery. It's here in this line, in this one line. You got Psalm 23 in this one line of Psalm 37. What's the point? It's just another way of saying, don't fret over evil. Don't fret over predatory evil. Learn to develop such confidence in the care of God for you that you can occupy yourself, as the sheep does, with chewing on the faithfulness of God instead of fretting over everything that isn't faithful to Him. And that doesn't mean that you become unconcerned or passive. But befriending faithfulness, even befriending conveys the idea of working. As the sheep is working on her food, chewing it over and over, we're to constantly chew on, as it were. This is the imagery. Chew on every way God is faithful to us in Jesus. So befriend faithfulness like the sheep befriends her grazing grounds. The idea is that we nurture our courage and our resiliency in the face of every threatening thing that's set against God and his people. Now, one more action here for this morning, and it's the first line in verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. And this comes with a promise, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But it's, it's all really kind of mashed together, the idea. It's not so much delight yourself, and then in return, he gives you this. I call it a promise, but it's, it's, it's uh, more like delighting yourself in the Lord is the desire of your heart. That's sort of the idea of this. Let me explain it a, a bit. Each of these actions, as I said, is um, aimed at neutralizing our draw to fretting. To delight ourselves in the Lord in this context is to enjoy His faithfulness to us, to derive some pleasure from knowing the God of the universe knows my name. No, uh, well, hair on the top of the head is not a very good analogy for me as it's leaving me, um, but he knows. <laughs> he knows what I lost this morning, what I'll lose the rest of the day, and 10 years from now I'll probably be gone. At least the hair from here is what I mean. Hello? Um, so each of these actions, counteracting our draw to fretting, working on the faithfulness of God, he is so faithful to you and to me. The reason we delight in him is he's so faithful to you and to me that did you realize that even if you ask him for the wrong thing, he won't give it to you? What a terrible thing we've perpetrated on people when we said, you better, better watch what you ask God for, you know. 
As if he's up there going, just ask me for something wrong. And I'll, boom, I'll lay it on you. Jesus told a parable to take that fear away, the parable of the friend at midnight. He says, though you fathers, telling the disciples, though you're evil, he says, you would never give your son if he asked for bread, a stone. You'd never give him a, a, a scorpion if he asked for an egg. You'd never give him a snake if he asked for a fish. If you then, being evil, know how to do good for your children, how much more your heavenly Father in heaven? He takes the worry out of praying. What if I'm asking God for the wrong thing? It's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Believe it. He's not going to give you the thing that's bad for you. And so this frees us to delight in his faithfulness to us. I don't know all my desires. I don't have exhaustive knowledge of everything I desire. I know a lot of my desires, but I know my desires can change, and I know my desires can be wrong. But in not giving us the thing that's bad for us, even if we ask for it, he's actually giving us his mercy. His denial, his no, may be yes to his mercy. It is. You ever had something you really thought you wanted, you asked God for it repeatedly, didn't get it, or didn't like what you got, didn't really kind of want it that way, or you didn't get it in the time frame you wanted, and you read Psalm 37.4 and you thought, ah, empty promise, that belongs to some better Christian than me. I had desires and he didn't give them to me. If our desires are off or ill-timed or just mistaken in some way, then God denying them is actually a mercy. That's John Newton's insight, the guy who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. Uh, one of Tim Keller's most often, often quoted insights is God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. A little bit of a tongue brain twister, isn't it? God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Advantage God. That's the way we want it. We want the ball in his court. But that's not even the most important part of this. The most important part of this is what happens when we delight ourselves in the Lord. When we enjoy the faithfulness of God and experience, we find ourselves content, more content with him. Even if there are things we want, all our desires in this frame and Venn diagram and there we are and we got all these things we want and we're working for and that's fine. But we've got to be content with who he is and what he does, not with what we think we need him to be. And we've got to get to the place where we don't need him to fulfill our wish lists in order to trust him. We don't worry about him giving us something that we don't need. That's a terrible bondage to have to approach the, the good father of all and be fearful that I'm asking for the wrong thing. And you're going to give it to me to teach me a lesson. He doesn't operate like that. The psalm anticipates the desire of our hearts is ultimately for God. And so delighting and desiring, they play off one another. As I delight in him, my desires are for him. And that's ultimately what I want. I often feel this desire when we come to communion. Maybe you feel it too. C.S. Lewis said, I don't want a wafer and a swig of drink. I want him. Our longing for him, the mission statement of our church, is to glorify Jesus Christ and magnify his gospel in all of life until he comes. And when we take communion moments from now, it's said that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Not just the fact of his dying, but the merits of his dying, the grace of it. 
that I can delight myself in the Lord who would give himself for me. It's the greatest thing I've ever heard. And it, it impacts us, it impresses us in such a way that I want my desires, the desires of my heart to be fitting his design and his purpose and his call. The one who died is living and continually drawing us to himself. Let me pray and then I'll take us through communion. Father, as we go into this communion time, we thank you for the gift of your son. Remarkably gracious. And it's illustrated in these tiny elements which uh, in themselves, Lord, are, are not satisfying. We want the real deal. We want the Lord, not just the symbol. <clears throat> we thank you for your spiritual presence with us when we take these elements. We thank you for your kindness to us in drawing us to yourself. And as we take these elements now, Lord, <clears throat> keep us mindful that the point of this time is not to clean ourselves up and make ourselves presentable to you. You know the truth of us. And you know the things that we don't even know about ourselves. We don't even know half the percentage of our, of our actual sin, but you do. And still you draw us. Still you want us. Still you're good to us. So we thank you for what this meal represents. And we thank you for the anticipation that this meal awakens in us. How it whets our appetite for a marriage supper in the new Jerusalem. They will never want to leave that table. We thank you for your goodness to us in Christ's name. Amen.